and welcome to the last of the episodes of Mad Dogs and Englishmen that will be recorded on a transatlantic basis. Next week I shall be back in the United States, reunited with Kevin, and uh, but for now we are, alas, 3,000 miles apart. And uh, this morning comes the news that some unions in Las Vegas are unhappy with Obamacare. Yeah, you know, I was looking at your uh, post on that, and Vegas, of course, is sort of a weird third-rate Disneyland for adults, and in the last few years, I've been writing a lot about gambling and issues related to that, and I've spent a lot of time out there, and it's a funny uh, divide between this, you know, sunny, happy-go-lucky cocktails at noon uh, sort of place, and these kind of grim-faced, angry... uh, semi-teamster type unions who actually run all the shops there. So what is exactly their problem with Obamacare? You'd think they'd love it. They're all a bunch of lefties. Well, they seem to be a bunch of lefties, although unions, and I'm not blaming them for this necessarily, but unions tend to be rather self-interested. And their objection is that the union, the Culinary Union 226, which represents thousands of people, housekeepers, cooks, you know, cocktail makers and servers and so forth, I think it's the largest union in Nevada. Um, they want to maintain their current benefits, and their current deal is that they get health care coverage at absolutely no cost to them, uh, nor does it affect their pensions, um, and they get guaranteed 40-hour work weeks, and their employers are just saying, with Obamacare, there is really no way that we can do this, so they're now threatening to go on strike. Mm, and what a tragedy that would be. So they're not going to get... Uh one of the many waivers that have been handed out or anything like that? Why not? I'm, that's a very good question. But I mean, my, my interest in this, I suppose, is, you know, I, I scrolled down on this story on BuzzFeed and the first comment I thought nailed it. The guy said, what, you can't have health care and pensions in a guaranteed 40-hour work week at no cost to yourself or cry me a river. <laughs> well, I agree with that. But, you know, it, it interests me in the sense that when the president talks about this, he, he does two things. The first thing is he makes it sound as if the only people who would oppose Obamacare are those who have it good already. So the rich and people who have this great health insurance are just pushing everybody else down. Um, and secondly, it, it sort of, he pretends that abstract argument is the only thing that matters in politics and that we should all sort of rise up in this, uh, you know, unself-interested manner and say, well, that, that sounds fair. That sounds like it meshes with whatever conception of social justice is is on vogue this week. But of course, people don't do that. And I, I'm under no illusion that the unions are going to suddenly start voting for those who would repeal Obamacare. But they're equally not going to sit there while it's having real-world effects and just take it. And there is a coalition of people who are against this law and who are bothered by what this law is doing that really cannot be spun as the rich Uncle Moneybags from Monopoly. I mean, there are people who are uninsured. There are people who are in unions. There are people who are staunch Democrats. We read in California those who said, well, I didn't know I would have to pay for it. And that is going to be uh, a problem. Yeah. One of the weird sort of longstanding political problems with Obamacare is that people's attitudes toward um, toward their health insurance has always been a little like their attitudes toward Congress. If you look at the polling before and after Obamacare was passed, 
people thought the healthcare system was terrible. They thought the health insurance industry was terrible. They didn't like the people who ran it. And there's, you know, some, some good reason for people thinking that. But then some very large number, I think 70, 80 percent of the people reported that they themselves were happy with their insurance and their coverage. It's rather like how everyone hates Congress but always reelects their own congressman. Yeah. And um, I think you're, you're, you're right that the rhetoric that was used to support this was the usual rhetoric, which is this is all going to be free. It's always this single-entry bookkeeping. You know, there's, uh, there's benefits to be paid out, and no one really ever talks about the costs. And the, uh, co- the assumption is always, of course, that the costs are going to be borne by someone else. These mythical rich people who apparently have endless stores of money that can be taken through taxation and support all sorts of benefits uh, at no cost to the other, shall we say, 99% of the population. And in fact, it just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The math doesn't, doesn't work out. It doesn't work out that way on health care. It doesn't work out that way on anything else. And if anything good comes from this debacle, I think it may be, well, two things. One, that people don't think of the federal government anymore as a competent you know, panel of experts and group of administrators. Not that I can understand why anyone ever thought that in the first place, but certainly the technical problems related to Obamacare have reinforced in the popular mind, the view that they aren't actually very good at this sort of thing. But the other thing is that it really has forced people to, I think, understand that there are always costs associated with benefits and that those costs ultimately have to get paid by uh, a very large majority of taxpayers simply because that's how the money is distributed. Right. And it does buck the trend for the federal government in the sense that one of the great things about colonial America, especially in New England, where there was almost direct democracy, certainly very local democracy in local communities, was that if you made a mistake, then everybody could see it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, not, not literally because it was a while ago, but, uh, you know, the electricity would go out and people would say, well, we, we screwed this up or there wouldn't be any food. The problem with the federal government is that because it takes on so much, but also so many things that affect only a small number of people, the federal government can largely stand up and lie about how well it's doing for those small number of people, because nobody else knows. And a great example of this is the minimum wage. I mean, suppose the CBO is right, and that half a million people were to lose their jobs after a minimum wage rise. Well, the vast majority of people are susceptible to being told, no, no, it worked out absolutely fine, because they don't know any different. Whereas with this, I mean, Obama does have a bit of a problem. There is only a certain extent to which he can stand up and say to people, well, you're not seeing what you're seeing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as you say, it's not <clears throat> as if everybody is going to lose their health insurance, but it is affecting an awful lot of people who were happy with their health insurance and who will know, well, it's a little bit worse. And if it gets from a little bit worse to quite a lot worse or significantly worse, then they're not going to buy into this abstract notion, well, look, it helps that guy over there, because there's a critical mass of people who know, well, I am that guy over there. And, and you know, you see this with the unions, you're seeing this with the uninsured and, and so on and so forth, a real, a real disconnect between the rhetoric and, and the truth on the ground. And the flip side of that during the whole Obamacare debate was the Republicans made a really serious, serious political and policy mistake at the time, which is all they really did during the course of that debate was attempt to defend the status quo. And of course, a lot of people were unhappy with health insurance broadly writ, you know, not necessarily their own particular policies, but the insecurity that goes along with having your health benefits tied to your job so that if you lose your job, you also lose your health insurance. There were a lot of problems with the system before Obamacare. 
But all Republicans did during that whole debate was say, well, we have the best health insurance or health care system in the world. And they kept saying this over and over again. And a lot of people said, well, no, we don't really we don't really feel that way. And there was a chance to enact some sort of better reform because there were real problems with the system. And Republicans in their sort of, um, you know, habitual uh, reflexive attempt to just defend things as the way they are really missed, I think, an important opportunity. And now that it's been enacted and it's a disaster and it's going to have to be at least radically reformed, if not outright repealed, which, of course, is what we're all hoping for, maybe this will be a chance for the Republicans to to get something right. And on the subject of getting something right, the Senate actually did something good and useful. And there were Democrats involved. Uh, As you must have read on National Review yesterday, uh, the man who had been nominated by President Obama to head the uh, Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, a guy by the name of Debo Adigbe, something like that. I can't quite say his last name. Adigbile? Anyway, I'm not quite sure how it's supposed to be said. I only read. I don't listen to the radio that much. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Interesting uh, name, by the way. As I understand it, he's half Nigerian and half Irish which is just one of the all-time great American things yeah. to be. I think that's, there's, there's, there's really no, if his last name was McConaughey or something like that, it would be, uh, it would be even better, but uh, it didn't, uh, it didn't work out that way. Anyway, this guy is a sort of longtime racial rabble rouser. He'd been uh, the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and he had been for a while involved in a case that is, near and dear to my heart, which is the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, the uh, Philadelphia 1970s radical who spent a lot of years abdicating the murder of police officers before he got around to killing one himself. Uh, That was Officer Daniel Faulkner. He shot him in front of several people. There were a lot of witnesses at the case. He bragged about it when he was in the hospital after his arrest and getting treatment for the injuries he had sustained during the course of that arrest. And his case became, as you know, this um, cause celeb, particularly in Europe. He was made an honorary citizen of Paris and, and all sorts of things. And there's never really been, I think, all that much serious doubt about the guilt of Mumi Abu-Jamal in this murder. But the kind of collection of radicals uh, that have congealed around this case have used it as a kind of circus to... Um, to indict the American justice system, American police departments, law enforcement, and that sort of thing, as basically a, a racist conspiracy. And the idea that Mumia was being held uh, accountable not for his crimes, but for his political views and for being a black nationalist and all the rest of that. Right. And so, I, I think that, ahead, that's sort of the key point, which is I think the, the manner in which an awful lot of conservatives have talked about this has been misleading and opened themselves up to what is um, a, a reasonable charge, which, which is that we should never condemn people for their work defending people in court. Obviously, John Adams, right at the beginning of, well, before the Republic, defended the British soldiers in Boston, was deeply unpopular for having done so, but was also right. It would have been awful had he been disqualified uh, from being president for, for doing that. Likewise, John Roberts did the rounds yesterday, defended a, a serial killer, Uh, or at least a mass murderer, before he was uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The conservative case, much as it's been misput by many people, is not that because this nominee defended Mumia. It should be said he wasn't his lawyer. I mean, he came in voluntarily years later. But because he defended him, 
that he's unsuitable. It's that the guy is unsuitable for what is a political office because of other views that he holds, the manner in which he defended him, and what he attempted to use the case to publicize. And, you know, I just wanted to make that, that clear because I've yeah, seen Yeah, and, and I think that's a, a key distinction. You know, the, the murder happened in 1981 and the NAACP got involved in 2009 after all the, you know, major legal issues had been, had been sorted out. And you do see this from time to time. I remember there was a Republican running for Congress a few years ago whose Democratic opponent uh, attempted to paint him as some sort of neo-Nazi because he had, uh, in the course of doing his annual prono pro bono work, defended some guy in a, I think it was an aggravated assault case who was some sort of skinhead or something like that. And yeah, people are entitled to a legal defense. What they're not necessarily entitled to is political advocacy. And I think that's the real case about this here. Uh, we did note in the editorial today, and, uh, and I think this is key, that you know Mumia was, was alleging a sort of racist conspiracy against him during a time in which Philadelphia's uh, district attorney was none other than Ed Rendell, who's not exactly known <laughs> as a uh, as a right wing uh, kind of fellow. He's got no respect for speed limits, which I kind of admire, but uh, but other than that, he doesn't hold um, a lot of particularly radical views, or uh, certainly not any racist views that I'm no. that I'm uh, aware so, of. So, yeah, go sorry, ahead. I was going to say so so. Um, obviously, we're we're running towards the end, but before we move away from the the vote yesterday. <laughs> which was interesting, seeing how many Democrats, seven of them, uh, Harry Reid voted no for procedural reasons, but seven of them voted no straight up. And the NPR said this morning that it was, seven, you know, Southern Democrats killed this bill. Only two of them were actually from Southern states. It's hardly the Confederacy, <laughs> as Jonah noted. But what was interesting to me, and this is hardly going to change the political landscape of the United States, it should be said at the outset, but after Harry Reid got through his nuclear option, it, it really has uh, taken away the capacity of the Democratic Party to blame a Republican filibuster, which is what the headlines would have been yesterday. All we would have heard about yesterday is that Republicans had killed this nominee, but having stripped it back to a normal 50-50 vote, I mean, the guy lost by 47 to 52. It really was the Democrats that killed this. And that, yeah. that would have been lost, of course, had it been a 60 threshold, as it was with the, with the gun control bill. You know, four Democrats voted against the gun control bill, four Republicans voted in favor of it, but the headline was still Republicans filibuster this bill. Um, and, and that's got to have embarrassed Harry Reid. I mean, no, it's not the end of the world for him and the president, but that really has got to have embarrassed him. And before an election demonstrated that the Democratic Party on a, on a bunch of these issues is split and many of its uh, senators are vulnerable. Yeah, and things that embarrass Harry Reid are always uh, welcome as far as I'm concerned. I think old Mark Pryor's hearing uh, hearing footsteps uh, in his upcoming election, which is maybe one of the reasons he changed. Before we go, I just wanted to say, by the way, congratulations. I got a late-night text from you uh, yesterday in which you were very happily reporting the news that you had finally received your concealed carry permit. Absolutely. And, and I happened to be talking to your um, betrothed this morning. And she said you went so far as to ask her to send you pictures of it over in London as though you had had a, a new child. Well, I, it's funny. Maybe they listened to this podcast because yesterday morning we were just talking about how long it had taken. And it was almost exactly four months. So I had been waiting, not nine months as, as a child would have been, but I had been waiting for this for a long time. And it's difficult to explain really as a, as a Brit 
who changed his mind on this issue, who was very much anti-gun, thought gun control both worked and was the only moral thing to do, to, to be sent something like that in the mail. Not that I think you should have to have one, but that's a separate conversation, which says, well, you can go and buy one and you can carry it around with you for your protection. It's, a, it's an expansion of liberty almost through the, through the mail. It, uh, it was quite the moment. Well, I'm glad to uh, glad to hear it. Now, your um, your college thesis was on the Second Amendment, right? That's right. My Oxford thesis was, and that's what changed my mind on on the question. It was it was on the the question of whether it pertained to an individual right, and this is pre Heller, right? And I went into it, you know, convinced not that I knew anything about it, but convinced just by my general politics at that point, and also by my lack of understanding of the Founding Fathers and the American Constitution, that it was clearly not an individual right. We'll have to do, uh, we'll have to do an episode on that sometime. Oh, we I should. I think it might be an interesting discussion. Well, all right, enjoy your last few days in uh, England, and I will see you on Monday. See you Monday. All right, bye-bye. Take care.